Acts chapter 19, verses 8 to 20 is our passage this morning. An interesting passage in the Word of God. I'm kind of excited to be able to teach it this morning. Acts chapter 19, verses 8 to 20. Let's ask the Lord to guide us as we study His Word. Our Lord, we bow before you this morning with grateful hearts for so much that you do in our lives. Uh, so many good things you give us, so many challenges you give us, and we're, we're uh, not always as thankful for those challenges as we are for the good things, but we know that everything is from your hand, and that we can trust you, and we can love you, and we can submit our lives to you, submit our lives to your lordship, and know that you'll take care of us, and make us into the people you want us to be. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit who indwells us and applies your word to the situations in our lives. Help us to be listening for your spirit, listening for his guidance and how to apply your word in every situation. Now, Lord, we want to thank you for your son, Jesus, we thank you that he willingly went to the cross of Calvary and willingly took our place, took our sins upon his body. He, the innocent and sinless one. So that we might have the hope of eternal life. Sin and death have been conquered on Calvary's cross and we thank you. Now, Father, you require of us only that we put our trust in him, not ourselves, not our good works, not religious ritual, but in Jesus alone. And when we do that, you promise us eternal life, abundant living here and now and life with you forever. You promise that we will pass from death to life and we will be made a part of your family, a part of your church. There's even one in our service this morning, this service of the second who has yet to do that, we pray, Father, that they might make that most important decision this day. Guide us, Lord, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We need to understand as we study through the book of Luke that Luke is not just writing an exciting travelogue. I mean, this is not an episode of National Geographic Channel. He's not just writing about Paul's travels and the travels of the early church. He has a purpose in, uh, excuse me, uh, Luke, who's the writer, <laughs> has a purpose in all that he is writing about Paul and about Peter and about the others. He has a purpose in that. In our passage before us, Acts chapter 19, verses 8 to 20, as one writer put it, Paul countered the strong influence of magic in Ephesus. What Luke is trying to get us to understand through Paul, through his teaching, through his experience in Ephesus, Luke is trying to get us to understand that our God is sovereign. Our God is sovereign over all so-called God's little g gods. Our God is sovereign over all religions 
And this is most important. He deserves our undivided allegiance. What we're talking about this morning and what we're seeing in Acts chapter 19, verses 8 to 20, is really a question that Luke is posing to you and posing to me. And that question is, how's our allegiance to Jesus Christ? How's our allegiance to Jesus Christ? Are we divided in our allegiance? Because we're going to see, as we first in Acts chapter 19, verses 8 to 20, we first see the setting, we first understand a little bit about what's going on in Ephesus, and then we go on to be introduced to God's power through Paul, as Paul does a number of healings that we'll look at this morning, and then through the seven sons of Siva, and how God overcame them. What Luke is trying to express to us is that God gives us victory. God gives the church victory over superstition, victory over false religion, victory over the occult. But a, a funny thing happens, a strange thing happens later in our passage this morning. We find that many of the believers in Ephesus, many of them had divided lives. Many of them were practicing occult Things and practicing superstition. Many of them were, had one, feet, one foot in God's world and the other foot in the old world they came from. And so that's a question for us. Do we have one foot in God's world and one foot in the old world we came from? What we were before we came to know Christ as Savior? The sins that overtook our lives? before we came to know Christ as Savior? Are they still issues? Are they still problems? Are we still fighting that battle? Are we submitting to the Lordship of Christ? Well, Paul demonstrates victory over the occult. He calls for a break with the old life. Luke shows us how our God is sovereign over all so-called gods and sovereign over all religions and deserves our undivided allegiance. Now, background, a little bit of background we need as we go through the first part of this passage is, as one writer puts it, Ephesus is a stronghold of pagan superstition centering on the goddess Diana. We started to look at the goddess Diana last week and look at the superstition in Ephesus. Uh, we'll just have a few more things to say about it this morning so we understand the background to what uh, uh, we're going to see in Paul's experience in Acts chapter 19. Ephesus is a stronghold of pagan superstition. It's a place of superstition. It's a place of the influence of magic. It's a place of occult practices. And that's why we see Luke cataloging for us Paul's miracles. There are several layers of reasons that Luke does that and explains to us the miracles that Paul was able to accomplish. But most of all, to show God's power 
over superstition, God's power over the mystery religions, God's power over the occult. As the writer said, all, all Ephesus was a stronghold of pagan superstition. Again, the question for each of us as we, are, as we encounter in this passage is have we broken with the old life? Have we burned the bridges of the old life behind us? God will not share us. God will not share us. I like, if you've been here any amount of time, you know you're going to hear a Eugene Peterson quote every couple of weeks, right? Uh, he's one of my favorite authors, very quotable, and always challenges me, always makes me think. And so I like to quote him because I hope he's challenging you, and I hope he's, try, he's making you think. He said this, there are a thousand ways of being religious without submitting to Christ's lordship. Wow. Think about that. There are a thousand ways of being religious without submitting to the Lord of our salvation. Is that amazing? He goes on to say that, and people are practiced in most of them. People are practiced in most of them. We'll understand a little bit about Ephesus. It's a place of superstition, as we said. It's a place of magic, a place of the occult practices. Uh, it, it was a wealthy place. It's on the wane by now. Its harbor had become silted from erosion, and therefore uh, it had affected the economy of the city. So the economy of the city was built rather around false worship and built around the worship of uh, Diana of the Ephesians and built around the worship of this false goddess. And uh, that was kind of the, the, uh, uh, the fact then that there was a wrong kind of spiritual vitality there. There was a wrong kind of spiritual vitality. They were spiritual but not holy. They were spiritual but not holy. They worshipped Diana, or Artemis, as she's also called. They worshipped the, the temple of Diana, was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And William Barclay describes a little bit about the city. Now, we've already talked about uh, some of these things. I, I, I want to add a couple. Uh, Ephesus was, uh, as this writer says, the home of criminals. Now, why do I say that? Well, the temple of Diana, according to this writer, possessed the right of asylum. That is to say, any criminal reaching the area around the temple was safe. Inevitably, therefore, Ephesus had become the home of the criminals of the ancient world. If you could reach the temple of Diana, you were safe. No matter what you had done, no matter what, how you had violated the law, if you could reach the temple of Diana, you were safe. Can you imagine what that did to the city of Ephesus? Can you imagine the element it brought to the city of Ephesus? Also, the writer says that Ephesus was a center of pagan superstition. <clears throat> she was famous for charms and spells, 
called Ephesian letters, they were guaranteed to bring safety on a journey, to bring children to the childless, to bring success in love or business enterprise. From all over the world, people came to buy these magic parchments, which they wore as amulets. Amulets. That's a, that's a little bit about the city of Ephesus. Now, Larry Richards gives us some perspective to this. What was the Christian perspective? Remember, on, on one hand, this is a beautiful city with one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. On one hand, it is a, uh, a religious city, but really it's not religion, it's superstition. It's occult. On one hand, you have that, but what did the early Christians see? I like the way Larry Richards put it. When the early Christians looked at Ephesus, they saw something very different. They saw a culture of fear, scarcely veiled by the architecture, architectural, artistic, and sensual beauty on display. Christ's followers saw a half million souls trapped in a devil-dominated world. Magic symbols and incantations failed to give them control over this world. Worship failed to connect them with the living God. Nearly the entire populace lived on a treadmill of superstition, confusion, and terror. Into this environment went Paul. Sounds a little like our world. Sounds a little like our world. Now, interestingly enough, where there was gross immorality, as in Corinth, and superstition and occult activity, as in Ephesus, Paul has fruitful ministry. We're going to see that in just a moment. Paul has great opportunity. Paul has great opportunity. He also has great danger before, before him. You, you realize, don't you, that opportunity and danger go together for the Christian. Great opportunity also means great danger. Where there was immorality and where there was superstition and occult activity, Paul has fruitful ministry. Paul has fruit, fruitful ministry. Immorality promises pleasure without consequences, but it can't deliver. Immorality offers pleasure without consequences, but it can't deliver. Superstition Promises that you can control life, but superstition winds up being a prison. Neither one can deliver. That's kind of the background for these people. Do you see the desperate position they're in? Do you see the desperate state that they're in? And that should help us to understand what's coming in these verses, chapter 19, verses 8 to 20. That should help us to understand why God acts as he does, why God works through Paul as he does, and the results that we see in this book. So let's look at chapter 19 and verse 8. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months. Now that, that is an amazing thing in itself. Paul didn't usually last three months in the synagogue, right? That was his practice when he went to a city. His practice was to go to a synagogue and begin there because they had a connection with the Old Testament. He could show them how Jesus Christ 
was the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies, the fulfillment of the coming of Messiah. And Paul could do that at a synagogue because he had people familiar with the Bible. And so he would start there. But did he usually last three months? No. Three weeks would be more like it. Sometimes less. But at Ephesus, he, he, he found a hearing. He spoke boldly there. By the way, that is a prominent theme in the book of Acts, speaking boldly for the gospel of Jesus Christ. He spoke boldly for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. Literally, in Greek, that is arguing and persuading. He was arguing with them about the Scripture, and his argument was so good, his reasoning was so good. We talked about reason last Sunday. His argument was so good, his reasoning was so good that he was being effective. He was persuading them. Well, three weeks or three months, you know that persecution is going to come you know that opposition is going to come. And so that's what we find in verse 9. But some of them became obstinate. In other words, the Word of God, instead of softening them, the Word of God, instead of reaching them, the Word of God, instead of drawing them in, it hardened them. By the way, that's what happens when a person refuses and refuses and refuses the Word of God, they become hardened to God. And they become hardened to the word of God. That, that is a, a woeful thought. And that's what's happening here in Ephesus. They were becoming hardened to the word of God. They became obstinate. They refused to believe. And they publicly maligned the way. The way was the description that they used of the early church. Calling it the way. So they maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. Now, opposition arises. The, the word of God had hardened the hearts of those who rejected. And so Paul takes his group of believers and goes to the lecture hall of Tyrannus. Now, Tyrannus means, guess what? What does it look like to you? Tyrant, tyrant, that was the man's name, was tyrant, either that or a nickname. Uh, some, of the, some of the writers looked at that and said, uh, uh, could it be that his parents would name him tyrant? Now, <laughs> you know, now sometimes a little baby can be a tyrant, right? Now, I don't, I was like, I want what I want and I want it now. Wah! Right? Uh, we don't know <laughs> whether it was a nickname tyrant. Uh, maybe that's what, he, he was the landlord, he owned the property, maybe that's what his tenants called him, the tyrant. Oh, here comes the tyrant, he wants his money again. Or maybe his parents named him tyrant, I don't know. One writer said, since it's difficult, except in certain bleak moments of parenthood, to think of any parent naming his or her child tyrant, the name must have been a nickname given by the man's students or tenants. We don't know. I don't know if it was a nickname or not, or whether his parents actually named him Tyrant, but 
It's, that's what Tyrannus stands for. He had a lecture hall. He was uh, perhaps the, the, the um, resident philosopher uh, or the landlord, and he rented to his hall to itinerant teachers. Now, one manuscript tells us that it was available between 11 a.m. and 4 p.m. Now, that's only just one manuscript, so that's not enough to build a case on, but that is uh, what the manuscript says, that it was available between 11 a.m. and 4 p.m. In the hottest part of the day, the time when the Ephesians would have lunch and take a siesta. That was their practice. It was too hot to work. It was too hot to do anything else. So during those hours, the hall would become available and Paul would rent the hall during the key of the day and he would continue to teach. You see, all work stopped at that part of the day. It was said that more people were asleep at 1 p.m. in Ephesus than were awake at 1 a.m. Excuse me, than were asleep at 1 a.m. More people were asleep at 1 p.m. than at 1 a.m. in Ephesus. Paul was eager to teach, and they were eager to learn. And that's what we find here. So Paul goes to the lecture hall of Tyrannus, and this went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Paul had a tremendous outreach. He had a tremendous ministry, uh, and he, he reached out to the areas around him. He ministered three years altogether in Ephesus, two years in this particular instance. Those whom he taught took the word of God to the whole region, which is today the west coast of Turkey. That's the area that we're talking about. And Paul's students took the word of God and reached that whole area with the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the time, we believe, when the churches at Colossae, Laodicea, and Heropolis were established as well as the seven churches of Revelation 2 and 3. Through Paul's ministry, this is how effective it was, through Paul's ministry, through the ministry of his students. Now, uh, what Paul's practice was, remember, we know he went to synagogues, and that was the first place, but also another thing he would do is he would go to the, the uh, important cities of the area he would teach, he would see many believers come to faith in Jesus Christ, and then he would send them out to the smaller cities to establish churches in the smaller cities. So he would establish churches in the large cities, and then those whom he taught, those who came to faith through his ministry, they would go and they would establish churches in the smaller city. So during this time, we believe that because of Paul's teaching, because his students took the word of God to the whole region, churches were established, Colossae, Laodicea, Heropolis, the seven churches of the book of Revelation in Revelation 2 and 3. Paul's strategy 
worked, he evangelized the principal cities and sent his converts to the surrounding areas. Now, that brings us to verse 11. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. Now Paul introduces, excuse me, Luke introduces Paul's ministry of miracles. Luke introduces Paul's ministry of miracles. We have already seen his ability to do miracles. We have already observed that that Luke is even-handed as he presents the ministries of Peter and Paul, and he showed us how Peter did miracles, miracles that were very much like the miracles of Jesus Christ. And now he shows us again how Paul did miracles, very much like the miracles of Jesus Christ. Now, why is that important? Why did God through Paul, do these extraordinary miracles at this time and in this place. Well, Ephesus was the home, as we have established already, of all sorts of magic and all sorts of superstition. The Ephesian writings were found commonly in antiquity to speak of documents containing spells and magic formulas. So, of Ephesus was so identified with superstition, so identified with magic, so identified with the occult, that there were books called Ephesian writings that contained spells and magic formulas for healing, for uh, dealing with issues in life, uh, for the problems of life, and they were called the Ephesian writings. Ephesus was the center of Satanic-inspired worship. Satan had unusual power of evil in this place. Now why does God give Paul an especially fruitful ministry and healing here? Because God is trying to show to his own people, as well as to the unbelievers of Ephesus, that his power is greater than the power of darkness. His power is greater than the power of Satan. His power is greater than the power of the occult. His power is greater than the power of superstition. His power is greater than the power of magic. Now, how did he show that? Well, interestingly enough, we read here, Paul did two kinds of miracles. The first kind, in verse 11, is through his hands directly he did miracles. These were extraordinary happenings. The second kind of miracle that Paul did is found in verse 12. He did it indirectly. Now, listen, because this is kind of strange. He did it indirectly through sweat cloths and work aprons. In other words, if you needed healing, Paul blows his nose on the work cloth and uses it to heal you. Wipes his sweat of his brow. I guess that was a better way to put it. Wipes the sweat of his brow 
onto the work cloth. Literally, folks, think about this. Think about how gross that would be, even just that, he, that he's working in the heat of the day, in the sweat of the day. Remember, he was a tent maker, and, and he's sweating, and he wipes himself down with a sweat cloth, and then uses it to heal. Now, where does that make sense? Why did God do it that way? Well, interestingly, he did it that way because it was the practice of the Ephesians and the Ephesian healers that they had to use pure white cloth to heal. What was God saying? What was God saying? God's saying, my power is so great that healing can be done through Paul's sweat cloth. He's showing God's power over the occult, God's power over magic, God's power over superstition. That even a sweat cloth could be used. Even work aprons could be used. It wasn't that the sweat cloth or work apron had power. They had no power in themselves. They were just tangible symbols of God's power. Again, to understand the area is to understand why these extraordinary miracles. Ephesians was the home of all sorts of magic and superstition, and that is the reason that God does these miracles through Paul. Now, let's, we, we've done this a couple of months back, but it has been a couple months. So uh, let me kind of give you a, a thumbnail sketch of healing in the New Testament, uh, healing in the ministry of Jesus. The purpose for Jesus' miracles were to show compassion and to meet human need, number one. Number two, the purpose for Jesus' miracles were to teach a spiritual truth. And number three, the purpose of Jesus' miracles were to confirm his credentials as the Messiah. To confirm his credentials as the Messiah to authenticate his claim to be Messiah, authenticate, uh, authenticate his claim to be God incarnate, the Son of God. That was the reason for his miracles. Well, then what was the purpose for the apostles' miracles? Well, the reason for the apostles' miracles were to show their connection with Jesus to confirm their ministry, to authenticate their ministry, to show that they were connected with Jesus and His ministry in that they did the same kinds of healings that Jesus Himself did. The apostolic miracles would show their identification, their authentication would confirm their connection to the ministry of Jesus and they would accompany the preaching of the word. Sometime on your own, look up 2 Corinthians 12, 12, Hebrews 2, 3, and 4, Romans 15, 17 to 19. Now, something important I want us to understand. 
there's some, a lot of emphasis on miracles, that we ought to be able to do the same miracles today. Well, first of all, there were only three periods in all of Bible history, starting with the Old Testament, there were only three periods of less than 100 years in which we see extraordinary miracles in the Bible. We don't see them all throughout the Scripture. Three major periods when we see them. We see them through the ministry of Elijah and Elisha. We see this, a period of extraordinary miracles that lasted less than 100 years. We see them in the ministry of Jesus. And now we see them in the ministry of the apostles, the three periods in history. But miracles themselves do not save. Miracles themselves do not save. We have a lot of people who say, well, we ought to be able to do miracles so we can see people saved. Miracles do not themselves save. We've often talked about Luke 16, verses 27 through 31. Lazarus and the rich man. You remember the rich man begged that Lazarus could come and cool his tongue, put just a little bit of water, he's in torment. But Abraham said, that can't happen. I'm sorry, there's a gulf fixed between you and him and he can't cross it and you can't cross it to his side. You made your decision in life. How sad is it going to be for so many who made their decision to reject Jesus Christ in this life and then to find out their eternity is fixed and they can't do anything about it? Because they were given the opportunity in life and turned away. Do you remember what the rich man said? Well, if I can't cross to him and he can't cross to me, then can you at least send somebody to my brother so they won't come to this place? And Abraham said, no, that can't happen either. Do you remember what Abraham said after that? They have Moses and the prophets. What is that a reference to when you hear Moses and the prophets? It's a reference to the Old Testament Scripture. It's a reference to the Old Testament Scripture. Abraham's saying, they have the Bible. Let them listen to it. You see, he rejects the idea of doing a miraculous thing so that these brothers might net make the choice to go to hell. And he decides, he says, no. They won't believe even if somebody comes back from the dead. Well, that became true later when people rejected Jesus Christ and he had come back from the dead. So miracles in themselves do not produce faith. Miracles in themselves do not save lost sinners. There's a Bible called the Rational Bible. The pontiffs introduced me to it and it's interesting uh, Bible. It has some interesting um, uh, statements. And they had a section in this Bible uh, entitled this, Miracles Bring People to Faith in God, but Only for a Short Time. I thought that was an interesting title. And what they basically mean is that miracles don't bring people to God permanently. Let me, let me say it in their words. In the wilderness, then this is based on the, uh, the parting of the Red Sea, God saving his people from Egypt, and how they weren't gone very long. They weren't 
uh, very far past the miracles of God's <laughs> dividing the Red Sea. Think about that. Suppose you were there to witness that. Well, you would never doubt God again in your life, would you? What did the people of God do in Israel? They grumbled. God just brought you across the Red Sea. What is going on in your mind? And they grumbled. And they wanted to go back. Well, listen to what the Rational Bible says. In the wilderness, the whole Israelite community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The ingratitude of the Israelites so soon after the miracles they witnessed is not only a statement about the Israelites, more importantly, it demonstrates a truism that is by no means self-evident. Despite what almost all of us may think, miracles do not necessarily lead to faith. In this regard, the witty American filmmaker Woody Allen was wrong when he insisted he would come to believe in God if only God would give me a clear sign like making a large deposit in my name in a Swiss bank. He was wrong because if a miracle is what gives people faith, such faith won't last long. Shortly after a miracle, people begin to demand another miracle. Let's imagine that large deposit was made in Woody Allen's name in a Swiss bank account. For how long would he continue to believe in God? Until the money was depleted? Until he contracted a severe illness and demanded a miraculous cure? Until he came to believe some anonymous human donor made the deposit? Besides, there are miracles surrounding us every single day of our lives. And then they go to enumerate, what are the miracles that surround us every day of our lives? Isn't the universe a miracle, they ask? Why isn't biological life a miracle? Intelligent life, love, music, the workings of the cell. When you think about it, any of these things dwarf one split sea, that's the splitting of the Red Sea, in terms of the miraculous. A human being is created from one sperm cell entering an egg. Why isn't that miraculous? Because it happens so frequently, so what? Why isn't that a miracle too? Indeed, indeed the most rational explanation for the existence of everything is that it is a miracle. Why is everything came about on its own by chance more rational then everything is a miracle. Isn't that a good question? Let me say it again. Why is everything came about on its own by chance? Why is that more rational to say than to say everything is a miracle? Meaning that divine intervention made the otherwise improbable, if not impossible, happen. You see, miracles of themselves do not save lost sinners. third thing I want you to see here about miracles is Satan can counterfeit miracles. 2 Corinthians 11, 13 to 15, 2 Thessalonians 2, 9, Matthew 7, 22 and 23. Satan can counterfeit miracles. Paul had the gift of healing, yet there were times when he himself could not heal. He didn't have the power 
to heal himself, 2 Corinthians 12, 8. He couldn't heal Epaphrodites, Philippians 2, 27. He couldn't heal Timothy, 1 Timothy 5, 23. And he couldn't heal Trophimus, 2 Timothy 4, 20. But what I want you to see, and that's just a, a thumbnail sketch of miracles in the Bible. What I want you to see is that Luke records these miraculous happenings of Paul. Luke records them so that we might understand that in a city that was given over to magic, in a city that was given over to superstition, in a city that was given over to false worship, in a city that was given over to the worship of Satan in one form or another, God is all-powerful. and victorious over all of those things. Well, verse 13, I've got to, to move on here and we'll compact everything in five minutes. <sighs> Some Jews, verse 13, who went around driving out evil spirits, tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed, they would say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Siva, a Jewish high priest. We have no record of any Jewish high priest named Siva. We don't know if he claimed this for himself to give himself a little more cachet. A Jewish high priest, we're doing this. One day, the, this is one of the funnier sections of Scripture, I'm sorry, in my book. One day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and I know about Paul, I've heard about him, but who are you? If you're those seven, you know right then and there you're in trouble, right? You know right then and there you're in trouble. Then the man who had the evil spirit, <laughs> sorry, it's just jumped on them and overpowered them. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. Whoa. What's this supposed to show us? God isn't a God you mess around with. God is not a God you mess around with. And you can see that result in verse 17. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with phobos, fear. And the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed. Now, by the way, the tense of that verb tells us that they had believed previously. So we are talking here not about people who came to faith because of what they saw happen to the seven sons of Siva. We are talking here about believers who had come previously to faith in Ephesus. What happened to them? Many of those who had come to faith now came and openly confessed their evil deeds. What? Believers confessing evil deeds? Well, they're no different than us. 
or we're no different than them. Maybe I should say it that way. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. By the way, we have no idea how much money that was. It was a lot. I mean, there are all kinds of speculations about how much money it would be. Let's leave it at it was a lot. It was a lot. The total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. You see, God was purifying his church. One writer said, you cannot be a believer and hold on to the occult, black magic, or sorcery. Once you begin to dabble in these areas, it is extremely easy to become obsessed by them because Satan is very powerful, but God's power is even greater. If you are mixed up, this writer said, if you are mixed up in the occult, learn a lesson from the Ephesians and get rid of anything that lures you into such practices. Another writer said, they made the cleanest of clean cuts. Even though it meant abandoning the things that were their livelihood, it is all too true that many of us hate our sins, but either we can't leave them at all, or we do so with a lingering and backward look. We have to break. We have to break with the old ways. We have to break with our sin will stunt our growth. It will infect the body of Christ. We have to call upon the power of the Holy Spirit through the Word of God and through prayer. Another writer said, the power of the Word of God was demonstrated most dramatically when the Ephesian believers confessed their evil practices and burned the other books and sources to which they looked for wisdom and hope they burned their bridges behind them, gave themselves an exclusive allegiance to Christ. And then the writer asked these questions of us. What are some things that we hesitate to burn in order to be really honest and committed to the Lord? What would it cost to let them go? Let's bow together in prayer. Lord God, thank you. Thank you for your power. Thank you that your power dwarfs that of the power of evil. Help us as we look at our own lives to see what areas of our lives are still not under your lordship. And help us to seek out the scripture. Listen for your spirit to guide us and follow you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.